0: Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. This is Robert Acosta speaking from Accessible World, and uh, we're we're really excited today to be here with all of you, mon- uh, Friday, January 20th, 2017, uh, on novel ideas. Special note: to help us with our discussion uh, of this profound book, we have invited a wonderful woman of color to give. For reactions and to answer our questions at the appropriate time in the program. She has taken numerous African American classes in college and lives with this issue every day, and we welcome her. Novel Ideas will be discussing the book Small Great Things by Jody Pico, DB 85761. Below is the publisher's summary. This stunning new novel is Jodi Pico's at her finest, complete with unflinching insights richly layered, characters and a pause-resisting plot with a gripping moral dilemma at its heart. Ruth Jefferson is a labor and delivery nurse at a Connecticut hospital with more than 20 years' experience. During her shift, Ruth begins a routine checkup on a newborn, only to be told a few minutes later that she's been reassigned to another patient. The parents are white supremacists and don't want Ruth, who is African American, to touch their child. The hospital complies with their request, but the next day, the baby goes into cardiac distress while Ruth is alone in the nursery Does she obey orders or does she intervene? Ruth hesitates before performing CPR and as a result is charged with a serious crime. Kennedy McQuarrie, a white public defender, takes her case but gives unexpected advice. Kennedy insists that mentioning race in the courtroom is not a winning strategy. Conflicted by Kennedy's counsel, Ruth tries to keep life as normal as possible for her family, especially her teenage son, as the case becomes a media sensation. As the trial moves forward, Ruth and Kennedy must gain each other's trust and come to see that what they've been taught their whole lives about others and themselves might be wrong. With incredible empathy, intelligence, and candor, Judy Pico tackles race, privilege, prejudice, justice, and compassion and doesn't offer easy answers. Small Great Things is a remarkable achievement from a writer at the top of her game. Ladies and gentlemen, at this time, we will ask our friend John Bolia to play um, a statement on this book uh, by Jody Picol. We we believe it is her herself giving this statement. So let me unlock this and turn the mic over to John Bolia, who will play this short recording. Menu bar. actions of menu act mute locked edit see user, user documents My conference recording Windows Media Player.
1: Author's note. About four years into my writing career, I wanted to write a book about racism in the United States. I was drawn by a real-life event in New York City when a black undercover police officer was shot in the back multiple times by white colleagues, in spite of the fact that the undercover cop had been wearing what was called the color of the day, a wristband meant to allow officers to identify those who were in hiding. I started the novel, foundered, and quit. I couldn't do justice to the topic somehow. I didn't know what it was like to grow up black in this country, and I was having trouble creating a fictional character that rang true. Flash forward 20 years. Once again, I desperately wanted to write about racism. I was uncomfortably aware that when white authors talked about racism in fiction, it was usually historical. And again, what right did I have to write about an experience I had not lived? However... If I'd written only what I knew, my career would have been short and boring. I grew up white and class-privileged. For years, I had done my homework and my research, using extensive personal interviews to channel the voices of people I was not. Men, teenagers, suicidal people, abused wives, rape victims. What led me to write those stories was my outrage and my desire to give those narratives airtime so that those who hadn't experienced them became more aware. Why was writing about a person of color any different? Because race is different. Racism is different. It's fraught, and it's hard to discuss, and so as a result we often don't. Then I read a news story about an African-American nurse in Flint, Michigan. She had worked in labor and delivery for over 20 years. And then one day, a baby's dad asked to see her supervisor. He requested that this nurse and those who looked like her not touch his infant. He turned out to be a white supremacist. The supervisor put the patient request in the file, and a bunch of African-American personnel sued for discrimination and won. But it got me thinking, and I began to weave a story. I knew that I wanted to write from the point of view of a black nurse a skinhead father and a public defender. A woman who, like me and like many of my readers, was a well-intentioned white lady who would never consider herself to be a racist. Suddenly, I knew that I could and would finish this novel. Unlike my first aborted foray, I wasn't writing it to tell people of color what their own lives were like. I was writing to my own community, white people, who can very easily point to a neo-Nazi skinhead and say he's a racist, but who can't recognize racism in themselves. Truth be told, I might as well have been describing myself not so long ago. I am often told by readers how much they've learned from my books, but when I write a novel, I learn a lot as well. This time, though, I was learning about myself. I was exploring my past, my upbringing, my biases, and I was discovering that I was not as blameless and progressive as I had imagined. Most of us think the word racism is synonymous with the word prejudice. But racism is more than just discrimination based on skin color. It's also about who has institutional power. Just as racism creates disadvantages for people of color that make success harder to achieve, it also gives advantages to white people that make success easier to achieve. It's hard to see those advantages, much less own up to them. And that... I realized was why I had to write this book. When it comes to social justice, the role of the white ally is not to be a savior or a fixer. Instead, the role of the ally is to find other white people and talk to make them see that many of the benefits they've enjoyed in life are direct results of the fact that someone else did not have the same benefits. I began my research by sitting down with women of color. Although I knew that peppering people of color with questions is not the best way to educate oneself, I hoped to invite these women into a process, and in return they gave me a gift. They shared their experiences of what it really feels like to be black. I remain so grateful to these women, not just for tolerating my ignorance, but for being willing to teach me. Then I had the pleasure of talking to Beverly Daniel Tatum, former president of Spelman College and a renowned racial educator. I read books by Dr. Tatum, Debbie Irving, Michelle Alexander, and David Shipler. I enrolled in a social justice workshop called Undoing Racism and left in tears every night as I began to peel back the veneer of who I thought I was from who I truly am. Then I met with two former skinheads to develop a vocabulary of hate for my white supremacist character. My daughter Sammy was the one who found Tim Zoll, a former skinhead who had Skyped with her class in high school. Years ago, Tim beat up and left a gay man for dead. After getting out of the movement, he started to work at the Simon Wiesenthal Center talking about hate crimes and realized one day that the man he had nearly killed worked there too. There were apologies and forgiveness, and now they are friends who talk about their unique experience to groups every week. He is also happily married now to a Jewish woman. Frankie Mink, another former skinhead, works with the Anti-Defamation League. Although he once recruited for hate crews in Philly, he now runs Harmony Through Hockey, a program to promote racial diversity among kids. These men taught me that white power groups believe in the separation of the races and think they are soldiers in a racial holy war. They explained how recruiters for hate groups would target kids who were bullied, marginalized, or who came from abusive homes. They'd distribute anti-white flyers in a white neighborhood and see who responded by saying that the whites were under attack. Then they'd approach those folks and say, you're not alone. The point was to redirect the recruits' rage into racism. Violence became a release, a mandate. They also taught me that now, most skinhead groups are not crews seeking out violence, but rather individuals who are networking underground. Nowadays, white supremacists dress like ordinary folks. They blend in, which is a whole different kind of terror. When it came time to title this book, I found myself struggling again. Many of you who are longtime fans of mine know this was not the original name of the novel. Small great things is a reference to a quote often attributed to Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. If I cannot do great things, I can do small things in a great way. But as a white woman, did I have the right to paraphrase these sentiments? Many in the African American community are sensitive to white people using Martin Luther King Jr.'s words to reflect their own experience. And with good reason. However, I also knew that both Ruth and Kennedy have moments in this novel where they do a small thing that has great and lasting repercussions for others. Plus, for many whites who are just beginning to travel the path of racial self awareness, Dr. King's words are often the first step of the journey. His eloquence about a subject most of us feel inadequate putting into words is inspiring and humbling. Moreover, Although individual changes cannot completely eradicate racism, there are systems and institutions that need to be overhauled as well. It is through small acts that racism is both perpetuated and partially dismantled. For all of these reasons, and because I hope it will encourage people to learn more about Dr. King, I chose this title. Of all my novels... This book will stand out for me because of the sea change it inspired in the way I think about myself, and because it made me aware of the distance I have yet to go when it comes to racial awareness. In America, we like to think that the reason we have had success is that we worked hard or we were smart. Admitting that racism has played a part in our success means admitting that the American dream isn't quite so accessible to all. A social justice educator named Peggy McIntosh has pointed out some of these advantages. Having access to jobs and housing, for example. Walking into a random hair salon and finding someone who can cut your hair. Buying dolls, toys, and children's books that feature people of your race. Getting a promotion without someone suspecting that it was due to your skin color. Asking to speak to someone in charge and being directed to someone of your race. When I was researching this book, I asked white mothers how often they talked about racism with their children. Some said occasionally. Some admitted they never discussed it. When I asked the same question of black mothers, they all said, every day. I've come to see that ignorance is a privilege, too. So what have I learned that is helpful? Well, if you are white, like I am... You can't get rid of the privilege you have, but you can use it for good. Don't say, I don't even notice race like it's a positive thing. Instead, recognize that differences between people make it harder for some to cross a finish line and create fair paths to success for everyone that accommodate those differences. Educate yourself. If you think someone's voice is being ignored, tell others to listen. If your friend makes a racist joke call him out on it, instead of just going along with it. If the two former skinheads I met can have such a complete change of heart, I feel confident that ordinary people can too. I expect pushback from this book. I will have people of color challenging me for choosing a topic that doesn't belong to me. I will have white people challenging me for calling them out on their racism. Believe me, I didn't write this novel because I thought it would be fun or easy I wrote it because I believed it was the right thing to do and because the things that make us most uncomfortable are the things that teach us what we all need to know. As Roxana Robinson said, a writer is like a tuning fork. We respond when we're struck by something. If we're lucky, we'll transmit a strong, pure note, one that isn't ours, but which passes through us. To the black people reading small, great things, I hope I listened well enough to those in your community who opened their hearts to me to be able to represent your experiences with accuracy. And to the white people reading small great things, we are all works in progress. Personally, I don't have the answers and I am still evolving daily. There is a fire raging, and we have two choices we can turn our backs or we can try to fight it. Yes. Talking about racism is hard to do, and yes, we stumble over the words, but we who are white need to have this discussion among ourselves, because then, even more of us will overhear and, I hope, the conversation will spread. Jody Pico, March
0: 2016. I now turn the mic over to our co-hosts, Randy Shelton and Ruth Ann Acosta.
2: Thank you, Bob, and thank you, John, for playing that. Um, It was part of the audible version of this book. Somehow, NLS didn't have that. And actually, as I listened to it again, I think it was possibly the same narrator who read Kennedy's part. I don't think that was Julie Pico herself. I've heard her speak and her voice is a little bit different so I could be wrong but anyway let's start off by going around. It's nice to see so many people here. There are a few we haven't seen in here Um, And I know Liz had asked a while back if people would say where they're from the first time they start talking and just say who you are, especially if you've never been in here before and where you're from, so that she and everybody else can get an idea of just how, you know, so we have a little more idea of who's here and where everybody's from. And so let's start by seeing what everybody thought of the book. I think we have a lot of good discussion here.
3: Randy? Go ahead. I'm wondering if we could go through a list of the
2: characters
3: in the book, just in case it's been a while for some, maybe some of us haven't, have read it. A while ago, and
0: we'll give a couple help us
3: out. Uh, yeah, we have Ruth, of course, Ruth, Ruth the Jefferson. nurse, Ruth Jefferson. Uh, we have Turk and uh, uh, what was it? Brittany, Brit, or as they call her, Brittany, who were the parents, uh, the uh, the uh, skinheads, and she's the one that had the baby. Brittany. Uh, and why don't uh, if anybody? <laughs> uh, I I can't remember the name of the son.
0: Um, okay, well, let's see what they say. Okay. Let's see what people have to. If you want to add characters, just so we let's have so them, we since many of us read it maybe a month ago or six yeah. weeks.
3: Adicia, I remember her. Yeah, we she remember was her. Sister, called Rachel.
0: Marie and Doreen, the nurses. Okay, yeah. let's uh, see what others have to say.
2: Um, the son, the baby's name was Davis. Um, Aisha was. Ruth's sister, her name was Rachel, but then she switched it. Um, and Nina was the woman that Ruth's mother worked for, and I believe her husband's name was Sam. Christina was their daughter. Kennedy was the lawyer representing Ruth. Howard was Ruth, was Kennedy's assistant. He was a new lawyer in her firm. Um, The prosecutor, I think her name was Dina, maybe. Um... and trying to think if there was anybody else
4: the prosecutor this is susan from pennsylvania um the prosecutor was odette odette lawton
5: okay and um Brittany's father was francis who was kind of the leader of the skinhead community and her real mother was adele
0: and the
6: son's name was Edison.
0: Well, I'll start out with, so we can thank you guys for giving the characters. At my age, when I hear those, bells start ringing. Oh, yes, of course. Very briefly, I'm going to be brief. We have a large audience here. I, I, I went through life pretty complacent. I was a member of the National Federation of the Blind, and when I was in it, Blind was beautiful. You know, we're, oh boy, look at the battles they had. This will be fun. I then joined the American Council, and the same thing. You know, this this is just great. You know, we, we know what discrimination is. No one knows it like we do, etc. And then I began to become a work in progress, which I still am. I read this book, and was profoundly shook up, because what I believed to be tolerance, was believed to be, you know, hey, I'm okay. I understand. I'm not even close i I do understand now, and i will conclude this way that racism is, is institutional power, institutional power we're all prejudiced we all we all are. I can remember as a- I won't start quoting things, but the the simple one was I learned that black black guys couldn't play quarterback until Doug Williams won the Super Bowl for Washington Redskins so, whoops, you know uh my dad believed that he was nice man he's a he was a good guy. He had black friends and white friends, but he said, no, they panic. I said, Dad, white guys don't panic either. Well, not as much as black quarterbacks do. So, you know, my point is that I learned, I learned from this book that racism is institutional, that we all have prejudices that we must deal with. And if I learn that and try to um, internalize that, I'll be ahead. Thank you.
7: Oh, this is Michelle. Um, I'm from New York. Um, it was interesting reading this book. I, I just actually finished it yesterday. Um, a couple of weeks ago, for a different book group, I read uh, Between the World and Me by Tina nehisi Coates, which is a nonfiction book. Which, but it, it's it's a similar theme. Um, and and what it really does is it opens up your eyes to. If you're a white person, really, what is the experience of not necessarily like the blatant, overt prejudice that we all easily recognize, but like the small indignities, the sort of casual racism that, you know, honestly, I think sometimes we, we really don't don't even think about. Um, I can I'm not going to list them because there's so many people here, but I've I've had friends over the years who are African American, and I've been startled sometimes. Um, when I will walk into a store with them or, or other experiences, my the way that I would my expectations versus their expectations. It, it's it, and I think the book was really accurate about that. Um, and and it was a very emotional story. Um, I mean, the funeral of uh, Ruth's mother. I was almost in tears reading that. And there were there were a lot of parts that were very emotional. Um, the one part of the book that I had. Some qualms about was really in the very beginning where um, the nursing supervisor uh, Marie Maria um, decided unilaterally that she was going to, you know, have Ruth not take care of this child. And I just, I, I, I had a hard time suspending my disbelief about that because I just thought, I think the book took place in 2015, you know, this was a public hospital, and I couldn't believe that a new nursing supervisor would think that this was acceptable behavior Um, that they wouldn't go to human resources or bring in outside legal counsel or something like that. So that was my one small issue with this book. Otherwise, I thought it was really very, very well done and and very, very emotional story.
8: Well, I agree with you, Michelle. I'm Marsha Moses from uh, Canton, Michigan. And um, this just really opened my eyes you know I thought hey you know I, I love everybody and and what have you and uh, but uh, I it did bring home the point that we are all prejudiced in some way um, and I guess that's just part of the human race I suppose because I'm sure that uh, with uh, you know that uh, blacks are The same way with with good reason because they've been, you know, we have uh, had our power over them. And, uh, but the the part of the one main section of of the book that really brought this home to me was when Ruth invited Kennedy to go shopping with her to the, you know, to pick up, I think, birthday gifts or whatever. And, you know, the, the store clerk kept following them around and on the way out of the store when the security person asked to see Ruth's receipt, but not Kennedy's, and I thought, you know, this is true. Um, African Americans are followed around, you know, racial profiling is is going on. Um, They are pulled over all the time by the police for no reason or phony reasons,
5: and uh, it, it, it's, it exists. Hi, this is Liz. I'm in from Ann Arbor. Um, I, this book was really profound, and I was so upset. <laughs> I don't do this very often, but I was so upset about oh, a third of the way into it. I actually had to skip ahead to the end of it to make sure that it ended okay because it was so upsetting. And then I went back and read the whole thing through. Um, I just want to say something about Michelle's, um, I think it was Michelle who brought up the, she wasn't sure that that kind of situation would actually happen today, that a supervisor wouldn't just, you know, put such a profound note on someone's chart. And I can tell you that I actually worked in a situation um, in a rape crisis center where one of my coworkers workers um, was African American and we had somebody come in once and refused to see her because she was black and yes, my supervisor tried to reassign the case to me and she told me why and I refused to take it and I told her, I said that's, that's ridiculous, Denise is just as qualified if not more so than I am and um, it, it was a horrible situation. It wasn't any more appropriate than what happened in the book, but it does happen. Um, and that's, you know, it was, a, it was a startling. And we were a public agency, too. We were not a private agency, so that kind of thing does happen. Um, and I remember feeling so enraged because in front of the entire staff, you know, this was going on, and, you know, Denise was just sitting there, you know, and it's like I could not believe that our supervisor was actually doing that. Anyway, back to the book. Um, the thing, um, I think the thing that, that perhaps I still struggle with is um, I feel like as a blind person who has a fair amount of visible um, recognition that I'm blind, um, what I've said and what I've always felt, and I've, I've, I've always felt, well, I've frequently felt an affinity to African-Americans because I know what it feels like to walk into a room and be judged just when people look at me. Um, I've had people automatically assume that I'm helpless, that I'm dumb, that I'm uneducated. Um, When I was buying my own home 20 years ago, I had somebody who knew me in a church situation say, oh, are you moving into a group home? Like, he had no recognition that I could possibly be buying my own home in Ann Arbor. Um, So, you know, I I feel like in this book I could really identify with Ruth's struggles more so than Kennedy's because I did not grow up with privilege. I grew up, you know, with a lot of challenges. Um, But yeah, you know, (laughs) in the bigger picture, I think that, you know, if you're white and blind, you certainly have, you know, a a bigger entree than than an African-American person. And I've been with my, you know, with several African-American friends when, you know, the store clerk really didn't know who to deal with because she didn't want to deal with a black person, she didn't want to deal with the blind person, so she, you know, obviously flustered, you know, standing there waving the check in the air, not not sure who to give it to. It's has actually kind of fun, but um, the part of the book that I was a little disappointed in was the very ending and how it was concluded. Not not the situations that it was concluded by, but I I think it was a little abrupt, and. I, you know, I, I think it wouldn't have taken much more than another couple, like a chapter from Ruth's perspective, in terms of the six-year forward. This is how I got married. This is who I married. This is how I got the money to open my own clinic. And also from Kennedy's perspective, I would have liked to have heard. Um, uh, sorry, I'm obviously a little flustered here tonight, <laughs> but I would have liked to have heard Kennedy's perspective, or you know, her updates too. Um, and, again, the whole... Yeah, so the ending for me was a little abrupt and a, a little... Un, I was not as
9: satisfied with that as I was with the rest of the book. Thanks. Uh, my name's Ladon, Dallas, Texas. And this was my second Our first best book, I thought, that I read this year. I was very, very involved in it. And uh, it turns out that this weekend, uh, our Thursday, actually my book club is discussing this book book also. And I was wondering if there's any way to get a copy of that uh, uh, author's statement that was just played at the beginning. This this would be great for my my book club. I, uh, like I said that this is one of my favorite books, first or second of the year, and I really was into the book and I thought it would collapse right at the end. She just Reached too far, too. As the lady just said, too fast to get us a uh, upbeat ending. I just couldn't see that metamorphosis of feeling happening that fast, and so that was a little unbelievable. But the other things in the book uh, that happened, I had no problem believing believing, and I had no problem believing that someone would come in to a hospital and demand that a black person not touch their baby I had no problem believing that at all I had no problem believing that the hospital administrator would turn uh, on the nurse to keep the hospital from being sued I believe that's uh, the whole deal was that uh, the the reason that uh, the hospital did that in the first place, was so that they would not be held responsibil- responsible for anything that happened. And as far as prejudice, I am so disappointed these years. For a long time, I thought that race relations in this country was on an upbeat. I thought we were getting over it like children growing up. But no... And the past few years, I found that it's raising raising its ugly head again all around me. And I, I just can't hardly stand it. And, uh, of course, I'm a white person, so I don't know all the troubles that black people have to live through. Now, there was one thing that Ruth, and I'm going to tell you this from my white point of view. The one thing that I thought Ruth... Was a bit sensitive that everybody was against her because she was black. Everybody wasn't against her, but I didn't feel that her son felt the same way. Maybe it was because he hadn't grown up uh, and uh, faced as many problems as she had. But that was just my prejudice. I grew up in a prejudiced world and uh, I can't help but having some prejudice in in me. But because I realize that, I keep those buried and understand that that's not the the way to be. And I have, I think for the most part, overcome the prejudice I learned as a child. I'll talk more a little later if I'm allowed, but for now I'll turn the mic over.
6: Hi, this is Alan Lemley. Uh, I live in Brandon, uh, Mississippi, right outside Jackson, Mississippi. So, as you might guess, I've I've grown up uh, uh, around a lot of active racism. Uh, I, I'm very lucky that I was raised by parents uh, that weren't participants in active racism. But I have to admit, uh, this this book opened my eyes to the fact that uh, I'm sure I, I've I've exhibited passive racism, uh, as I'm sure probably most whites have. Uh, my hat's off to Jody Pico because I think she did an outstanding job with this book she She did a good job of bringing out things that uh you know a lot of white folks have never thought about and you know never had a clue about and and hopefully a lot of folks will read this and uh and get the message uh I think we've we've all lived through a recent uh, uh example of how we can be blind to what other folks are experiencing with this whole Black Lives Matter thing. You, you hear any white people on any, like at the Republican convention and stuff, all they want to say is all lives matter and they just want to discount where the other side's coming from. And I think that's just a perfect example of it. Uh, but I, I thought the book was great and I don't think we can read too much of this kind of thing. And And hopefully we can all get the message we need to try to put on the shoes of our fellow man and get in their skins and see what they go through and hopefully get to where we can, you know, get along with each other better and uh, hopefully uh, uh, understand each other better. But, but thanks. Thanks for picking this book out. It was a great read.
4: I really, This is Carla Hayes, McMurray, Pennsylvania. And I I really enjoyed this book. I think Jodie Picot has become one of my favorite authors. I like her style, the way she writes, how she, instead of doing chapters, she just jumps back and forth for, um, for each character and, you know, tells their point of view. So you get several third-person points of view. And that's an interesting way to write. Her character development is excellent. And the narration in this book was really good. And I was especially surprised by the ending of the book. Turk was just so bad and so horrible to see him change. I mean, that was just that gives, that was a dynamic character. You know, a classic example of what would be considered a dynamic character. That he wasn't the main character, but he he changed a lot. And I think a lot of them changed a lot. And uh, I don't know, I I sort of, this is going to sound really, this may not sound strange to some of you, but maybe it does, I, you know, I'm white, but sometimes I feel akin um, to the African-Americans and the African-American uh, experience, because I think there's a, a parallelism between the blindness, you know, the people, those of us who are blind, uh, being in in a minority, and those who are African American, being in a minority, and so sometimes it's it's sort of a similar path in some ways, and so I can I can really understand a lot. I, I, it sort of gives me a lot of insight into what they might be going through. But but um, thank you again for for choosing this book. It was great.
0: One thing I want to throw out there, uh, that I hope, uh, our mentor, our friend Pam will discuss, uh, Ruth played the game, right? Would you agree with that? Ruth yes. assimilated with the white world. Let's put it straight out. Adisha said, I won't. And at first I was with Ruth. I said, Hey, Ruth, you're right. Except Adisha, got her welfare checks, remember, was it welfare or the EDD, maybe one of them, and the lady was hemming and hawing, and finally Adisha broke into the street language and said, this blankety blank girl needs money. Let's do it. And the woman said, okay. Is that believable to me? Boy, it it was incredible, but I believe it. And, And so Adisha wouldn't play the game. Ruth would play the game, and I hope I hope Pam or some, somebody here will speak to that issue. Was there a compromise in the middle somewhere? They, they came together as sisters by the end, which is good. They're both great ladies.
7: Well, uh, this is Michelle again. One thing that, that I, I understand a little bit is that when you're African-American, because been, it's been explained to me many times by different friends over the years, is that you know you have to a lot of times you have to accommodate yourself to the white world and especially this comes up in the working situation so you know they they kind of i don't know exactly what the 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 slang is or whatever but i know that a lot of times they put on a different face and what i mean is that they they act a little bit differently when they're around white people because that's the expectation that 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 the white community has, and it's kind of really tricky, and I think Adisa was, you know, she was just herself, and I think Ruth had all these expectations put on her because she was such a good student. She went to Dalton, which is a a, a very, very good private school here in New York City, Um, and you know, she really had all these expectations, but she had to sort of accommodate herself, I thought, to the, the white world, which was not really something that Adisa was doing. Um, so it was, it was interesting, and it seemed very, very realistic to me, actually, the way it was portrayed. I, I would also say one part of the book that I was pretty much yelling at the audiobook was during the trial where um you know it was Ruth was winning i mean she was definitely winning the case and then she took the stand and she just wanted to to tell her story and to to have herself heard and i understood that she she really felt the need to to have herself heard but I just thought, you know, I, I, I thought it was a mistake. I was like, you're winning, and, you know, you should, you should just let the case rest. So, you, you know, I, it, it's a very hard situation, I think, sometimes, the, the idea of, of being heard and, and, you know, wanting to, to be understood by, by the world. Um, it, it, it's, a hard, it's, a hard, it's a hard thing sometimes to understand, and it's, it's a hard thing to live through, I think.
0: Well... Yeah, I thought that at first, too. But Ruth wanted a message. She knew that she could lose the case. But the issue is race, the unsaid word. Remember when you go to an interview and you're blind and they never mention that you're blind? They don't talk about lack of vision? You know you're not going to get the job. Ruth, Ruth insisted, right or wrong, and she won, uh, that race be a major role. Face it up. You know, that. that's what I got out of it. Randy, uh, can we hear from... Um, uh, Pam, I, I would like to hear her remarks because that's why I'm here.
2: Yeah, I would too. Um, there's a few. There are a few other people we haven't heard from, though. Deborah Kendrick, Linda Davis, Jenny P., and Lena. Um, I don't know if any of you have anything you want to say quickly before we open it up to Pam. I just want to make sure everybody has a chance here.
3: This is Lina Tanner. I'm in Oregon. I've only read half the book, um, but I'm learning a lot from it. And I don't know if this answers or speaks to anything that you guys were talking about as far as um, the way each sister reacted. But Edison, the son, was having trouble, at least so far that I've read. Maybe he squares gets that all squared around where he didn't fit in with his white friend, really. He did. He thought he did, until he wanted to date his sister and then he didn't fit in with his cousins because he wasn't really raised the same way they were. Um, But I'm enjoying the book. I'm glad you got it or recommended it, and
10: um, I'm learning a lot. Oh, my goodness. I think I finally did it right. This is Deborah Kendrick. And um, I... um, Thank you for uh, allowing me to come in. I haven't usually joined this group, but when I saw the announcement that you were reading this book, I decided to read it again because I read it a few months ago and I absolutely loved it. Jodi Pico is one of my absolute favorite contemporary writers. And I understand those few people who say that it was wrapped up too quickly at the end, but I will say that she has a penchant for tragic endings and all through this book I was saying to myself and to Jody Jody you give this one a happy ending or I'm not reading you anymore we're done so I'm really glad she redeemed herself for my future reading pleasure um I unlike some others I I don't know I mean I'm not sure that I believe in reincarnation per se but I have wondered at times if maybe I wasn't black in a former life or will be in another life because I have always felt a very strong kinship, connection to black people. Um, when I was, I, I was too young to participate in the Freedom Rides, but I was very much aware of what was going on and very much just absolutely enraptured in the whole Business And I remember having wonderful conversations, and maybe they have something to do with it with my grandparents who, despite the era they grew up in, um, were very tolerant people and very um, strong supporters of the freedom rides and of Martin Luther King. when I was in high school, I had a couple of really strong the first essay that I ever wrote that was a winning entry in a, a, a statewide speech competition it was about black and white issues, and it was a very romantic, idealized notion because I was 15. But later, when I was 16 and applied for a job that I thought I would get without question, because the job was for kids in in the summer at the Board of Education to type and answer phones. And I'd been a whiz typist since I was eight years old and my phone skills were legendary when it came to calling radio stations and so forth. And I was sure I would get the job. And what I was told basically was blind girls need not apply. And the memory will always be with me of going home and standing on the back porch and talking to my father about it and, and saying, I understand what it is to be black. And, and I later, and I was, um, you know, became independent and was out and about in the world by myself. I can remember when I was in my early 20s and I'd be Christmas shopping and going to a department store, I would literally pray for a black person to see me and help me because I knew that they would talk to me like I was a human being, and they wouldn't see the blindness. They'd see me, and they would help me, and I'd say pretty much that continues to be true, that there's sort of an auto-kinship, a recognition. Um, I was in the hospital recently for a pretty long period of time, and I felt it again there. You know, so many... of The nurses and aides, the the white ones, all they wanted to talk about was my blindness. What could I see? What couldn't I see? I wasn't there because I was blind. I was there because I had broken my leg and I couldn't move. But inevitably, my favorite nurse was um, a black nurse named Michelle, who, I mean, we started calling each other sister, you know, because we just had this instant connection and she never talked about my blindness. She talked about everything else under the sun with me, woman to woman. And so at any rate, I I love this book and I felt that Judy Pico got it very right. And there were times when Ruth had those moments of like seeing someone hold a purse close in the checkout line. I think, yeah, we have analogies for that. Every every single one of those auto responses, ours are more um, more verbal, um, more vocal. But if if you all think about it, and, and if you're at all sensitive to the responses of other people to you, you recognize we do have a lot of similarities. So I I love the book. So much of it just really resonated with me personally. And because this group was reading it, I decided to read it again. And that in itself is a huge compliment for me because I almost never read a book twice. I always say there are too many books in the world to to um, take time for repeats. But I'm repeating this one and loving it just as much the second time.
5: Deborah, real quick, this is Liz. Thank you so much for what you just said because I resonate with everything that you just said and I won't take up any more time. Uh,
9: I didn't think that you needed to be of any particular race to really relate to this book. Ruth was arrested for a crime she didn't commit. She was thrown into a situation where she had no control and all the rules were stacked against her. And I think that a lot of us can relate to those, being in a situation where you have little or no control and all the rules are against you. It doesn't make any difference of your race. There was a complication in this case because she was a black woman, but it could have been any woman, and it would be a horrible situation to be in where you have no control.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, if I may, I want to introduce my friend, Pam Metz, for her commentaries on this. And, Pam, we're going to give you the microphone. You guys discuss this beautifully, though. Thank you. Okay, Pam?
11: Can you guys hear me? Yes. Yes, we can. Okay. Um, hi, you guys. This is Pam. I live in California, and I happen to be a, a – my favorite thing is I'm a black blind woman. Um, I'm always going to be black first and a woman first. Blindness comes in there someplace, but I'm always going to be a black woman first. Um, I was sighted for 43 years before I went blind, and so I understand a lot of what Ruth went through in this book. I worked in the nursing field for 20-something years. Um, I raised three kids in the African-American community. Actually, in the middle class orange county area of california southern california um i worked in made some of the major hospitals down in orange county i actually did an OB o and b ob rate, um, rotation when i was in nursing school um i wasn't an rn because but i was an lvn for that length of time and i saw a lot of what ruth dealt with in working in the hospital so yes it does happen, it did happen and it still does happen where a supervisor will uh, take the word of the hospital over the word of the staff first because the she wants to keep her job also. Um, it is hard for me. The book Hit home in a lot of spots because um, the caste system in the African American community, community, which I don't like the term African American, Barack Obama is African American. His father is Kenyan. His his father is from Africa. My family is not from Africa. They are. I was born. They were born and raised. We are three, four generations removed from Africa. I'm a black woman who is a native, who is um, an American. I was most of my family three or four generations back, was born in America. In um, slavery, we do have slaves way, way back. I have um, a great-great-grandfather who was a slave. His mother was a house slave, and he was half-white half down in Louisiana. We have a whole large white part of my family is in Louisiana. They won't have anything to do with the black side of my family. Um, we have a lot of Native American running around in our family. The book was... Beautifully written. I didn't like the ending. I had a problem with the ending. I didn't have a problem with Turk Growing up because that's what Turk had to do. He had to grow up And he started to grow up long before he went to court when he went to jail and he was in prison And his best friend was the black guy in prison. I forgot the black guy's name He started to realize that there was there wasn't that much of a difference between him and, and the blacks But then he met Brit and and her father and he got involved with the white supremacist movement and um, he got involved and so Turk had to grow up and he had to realize that (coughs) excuse me there were more out there there's more out there than what you see every day than who you're around every day the black experience is something that only black people are going to be able to experience the blind people blind people can't can relate to some of the experience but the black experience is only something that the blacks can experience Um, the color of my skin negates me from being any other color than black Um, so when I go into a store and I've seen that happen and it's happened to me walking through Target when I was sighted having security follow me through the store and I just invited the security guard to go shopping with me if she wanted to because she was following me through the store it happened to me plenty of times cited um, I remember when the LA riots happened here and I was working down in Huntington Beach and uh, I was catching the bus to a friend's house and this lady on the bus stop was a little old white lady who grabbed her purse and held it tight to her chest and I told her I'm, she, she, I said I'm sorry I don't want your purse miss," and she said but you colored people are tearing up LA I said, but I'm not in LA. I'm sitting right here next to you on this bus stop. So I have seen the racism. I've lived with the racism. My mom was involved with the civil rights movement when I was growing up. Um, I studied African-American studies in college because I wanted to understand the race of people I grew up w- with. Um, Martin Luther King was an awesome man. And the title of the book is awesome. But there's a saying that I love by Maya Angelou. When you learn, teach. And everything that you guys have learned in this book, you need to go out and ex- try to explain it to someone else. You think or have them read the book. I have about four or five friend- people that I know who are reading this book, including my husband He wants to read it. And so I think in this, in this day and age, racism is more out there than it used to be and it's out there more because of social media because of facebook because of twitter it's more out there when i was growing up it wasn't it was there Oh, it was there but we didn't have facebook we didn't have twitter what we do now and social media is putting it more out there and it's putting it out there in people's faces because people can sit behind their computers and type anything they want to type or say anything they want to say and not have people know who they are. The book I loved, her sister Odisha. Odisha reminds me a lot of my, how I grew up and some of my cousins. I dislike that. Um, um, Ruth, because of the way, the color of her skin, Ruth was a light skinned black woman. She wasn't a dark skinned black woman. Her sister was dark skinned. And in the black community, and this has been going on since the dawn of time with the African-American community or the black people is that the lighter your skin the more you are apt to pass for white and Ruth even as a young child could pass for white um was she white no but she could pass for white she raised her son in a white area of Connecticut um because she wanted him to have the best of that he could have but what I didn't think Ruth realized is that he could and she finally did realize is that he could have the best of both worlds Edison had to grow up to be Edison and she was raising a beautiful young man and she should have she but she because she wanted everything for her child and she wanted more for herself than she thought she would get as a black woman she tried to not necessarily hide who she was but uh she stayed more, leaned more towards the white than she did the black, even though she was all black, but she could pass for white and she could from a little girl. And but she, as growing up, as she was growing up, she realized that there's differences. When her friend Christina handed her that $500, that really embarrassed her. And she stuck that money underneath that mat outside that woman's door, because nobody can understand what I go through as a black woman every day even as a black blind woman we I still go through it every day i can um yeah. there's i haven't no, I, have, I don't know if people follow me through the store now. i can't see him and i don't care but i imagine it still happens when i'm with a shopper um so it's it's the book was absolutely well written it was a beautiful beautifully told story i wish there would have been another chapter added to tell Ruth's story and Kennedy's story at the end but overall, it was a well-written, well-researched book on the black community. I
3: that wanna, was great.
0: Oh, go ahead, Ruthanne.
3: Yeah, I want to know if you thought the ending or, or the switch would, was realistic, where uh, Britt turned out to be half black and apparently didn't know. I'm wondering if that is a realistic uh, ending. In, event as far as. Is concerned because she was most hateful towards black people, and then she finds that she has black, black blood in her
0: face. Let's, let's see what Pam says.
11: Ann, that's a good question because I was so, totally surprised when I read that. But when I saw the baby's lab work, I have I have a sickle cell trait. So I know, as soon as I read the, the, the lab report, or they heard the lab report, I knew the baby had sickle cell. I knew he was black. When, when they said that, um, when, when Max, whatever the guy's name was, showed up with uh, Adele, her mother, she flipped. Britt was a half black woman who passed for white. And her father never told her because here she was, a, a, a white woman, who was black and he never told her that her mother was black. I was totally shocked. But ironically, I was kind of happy that it happened to her because she was an evil old young lady. Evil. She's ha- she was hateful. And she had to have to blame somebody for her baby dying and and, and Ruth was the scapegoat. But it's totally shocked to me. And it and it does happen because Brit. Brit could pass for white, just like Ruth could pass for white. Ruth still had the you, Ruth. We knew was black, but we never knew Brit was black until her mother showed up. So yes, it does happen. And it there was a movie, *Imitation of Life*, where the young lady passed for white, and until her, till they, till at the end when the, she was getting married, marry a white man, and found out the man found out she was black. So it, it does happen.
5: Uh, yeah, regarding that point. Uh, uh, where Adele just kind of showed up. Did I miss something, or was there an explanation as to how Kennedy figured this all out, and then she contacted, oh, was it Maxwell? I can't remember his name. Sorry, and I know it was just mentioned. But then all of a sudden, he comes with Adele. That that whole thing seemed a little choppy to me, and I don't know how that happened. So if if that was explained in the book, can you <laughs> kind of just refresh my memory?
7: Um, yes, I, I actually wanted to ask, Pam Pam I hope I have your name right. Um, this is this is Michelle. Um, how easy do you think it would be for Jody Pico to have written a story instead of Ruth's story because that's what I was thinking about when I was reading the book because I, you know, I, I mean, she put her in a world that was predominantly white. She went to a school that was predominantly white. She worked in a hospital that was predominantly white. She lived in a neighborhood that was predominantly white. And I wondered, you know, how easy would it have been to have made it a decent a story instead of, instead of Ruth's story? and um, what I remember about the paper was that Kennedy saw the paper on one side and there was that, that uh, enzyme or hormone deficiency but she never turned the paper over and when she turned the paper over she saw that there was a sickle cell uh, abnormality which often happens in, in, in the that's a, a disease that's associated often with, with black people so then we knew that there had to have been uh, you know, a black ancestor in order for, for this to have have happened. So somehow they found Adele very quickly, and I and I agree with you. I thought it was really quick that they found her also.
8: Yeah, that was kind of a, a mystery to me, too. Uh, other than the ending, that was the only other part of the book that I kind of found, uh, not suspect, that's not the right word, but it was just sort of thrown in there, it seemed. And somehow Reverend uh, Mercy um found Adele. Now, how did he find Adele? I mean, you know, that could have been handled a little differently, too.
11: First, okay, you guys had three questions there. Uh, could Jody Pico write a, a visa story? No, I don't think she could have. Because Odessa was straight up black. She was struck from the hood. She lived in the hood. She lived in the projects. She thought the way she thought. She did what she did. And she could care less about how people thought about her. Could Jodie have wrote, written that sto- her story? I don't think so. Ruth's story was a little closer to what she knew. And yes, she sat down with black nurses and she sat down and talked to these people, but I don't think she could have written a Lisa story. Um, well, she couldn't have written Odisha's story without Ruth in the story. Um, as far as the lab work was concerned, I have a sickle cell trait. So I've been, but I think what happened, Kennedy turned the page over. She saw, she didn't understand what it meant. And didn't she call someone and ask them what it meant or something like that? But I think them finding the Adele that fast was a little bit much. Um, but I think they needed to be... They, when she said the baby had the sickle cell trait because it's not in order to have a sickle cell trait one of your parents had to have a sickle cell trait the trait is usually carried by the female my mother has a trait I have the trait, my girls have the trait my son carries the trait because I have the trait his his father does not or one of my kids would have been born with sickle cell anemia Um, so it had to be his mother or his father, her mother or her father, who gay, who carried the gene. It had to be the baby's mother, mother, who carried the gene. So, um, the way it went about was kind of crazy. Um, other than that, I think uh, them coming up with Adele was kind of cuckoo. I think they, that came out of the blue um, for me. Um, but I think it was a good. A shock for Britt, because Britt needed a shock. She needed to quit thinking about Britt. And when she found out, I guess they had, she had to figure out a way to get rid of Britt.
0: As I remember it, she did turn the paper over and saw... Yeah, it said that, uh, that she turned... Let me try this again. sorry, Alan. As I remember it, she turned the paper over, saw that she had sickle cell in her family, Britt, and then called her friend at the lab, who, who confirmed it, and then I thought she went to Reverend Mercy, who found Adele, and of yeah. course had the demonstration too. But I thought then she went to him, not a private detective, but they found her. And yes, it's quick, but it's a book. They had to move this long, you know.
6: Yeah, Mercy, uh, they pulled her the birth certificate and found out who the mother was. Now, whether they'd have been able to track her down that fast, who knows. But, you know, uh, uh, I guess she figured 16 hours she wanted to wrap it up,
0: so... Sometimes they have to do it quick. One thing that, that really impressed me that I never thought of was when Christine, Christina, whatever, the uh, the daughter, mm-hmm. the, the white daughter and everything. Uh, I thought I'd have more sympathy for her by the end. She did take on her husband. She did. OK, she sat in disguise in the courtroom, but she stood with Ruth in the battle. Finally, her husband was running for Congress. But she related a story that she was in college and was heading home and a black man picked her up and she got home and told mama, I forget her name, Odette. No, that's the yeah. mama. You know, guess what? I, I got a. I'm really good. At, I mean, I got a nice ride. This nice black man gave me a ride and mama shook her and said, my God, you could, have, you could get him killed. You know, don't do, ever do that again. And this was like, um, You know, uh, was it still in Connecticut? (laughs) I don't know where my, yeah, it had to be. That's another thing was profound, how ignorant I am. They they were talking about the northern part of the United States. Excuse me, Ellen, had it been Mississippi, I'd have, yeah, but it's happening all over. And, and I agree with LaDon. I thought we were making great, great progress. And we aren't. We have a way to go.
5: Um, it happens here in uh, Ann Arbor, Michigan. Believe it or not, a, a few years ago—I mean, this is like more than twenty-five, thirty years ago—I was walking with a friend in college, and we were both hassled on the street because he was black and I was white. So it, this is in Ann Arbor, which is like, you know, <laughs> liberal city, right? <laughs> so yeah, it's it's real, and it does happen.
7: Well, one of the things I thought she did really well was, um, you know, when we were talking about Christina was she showed if you remember there was that scene where Christina had her girlfriends coming over and Ruth was you know she was in a in a difficult situation because I guess they were about the same age and they were in the same house and was she going to be included in the slumber party was she not going to be included in the slumber party i i had kind of a hard time believing at the end that Christina would come through for her because i i felt really bad for ruth during the story because i kind of felt that she didn't have really a lot of support beyond her son who for the most part i thought was a a tremendously mature wonderful son i mean he made a, a mistake but you can understand it um uh, you know, because of everything that w- was going on. But I, I kind of felt bad for her. And I, and I liked when, you know, the, the family's uh, uh, church group came and supported her. And even with Christine, Christina, but I, I didn't really believe that she would come through in the end. Um, I was going to mention this earlier. I remember um, I was working, this is a number of years ago, and um, I had a a friend at work who who was black, and we we were just walking along the street, and we stopped in front of this little tiny, like, jewelry store, not a fancy jewelry store, just a little tiny jewelry store, and, you know, she saw something in the window, and I said, oh, let's go in and look at it. And she kind of, like, you know, sort of froze, And, and she was like, oh, no, we can't go in. And I said, no, we can go in. What's the big deal? We'll just go in. And the two of us went in, and, you know, I don't know... We asked to see whatever it is that she wanted to see. And when we left the store, she said to me, oh, that wasn't so bad. And I really, I felt so bad for her because I thought, you know, I I guess, you know, sometimes people are intimidated, I guess, if they're going to walk into, I don't know, some kind of fancy place. But this was not a fancy place. This was a little tiny nothing store. And it kind of brought it home to me that you know that the experiences were different. Like I didn't think anything about walking into a jewelry store, but she really was you know kind of shaken. And I don't know, I don't know that she would have walked in if I didn't kind of encourage her and, and go in with her. So it's it's um you know it's really something to think about these experiences.
8: Yeah, and and the thing about the slumber party too, and Ruth was included, and they were talking about uh, you know do you get us do you get. Can you get a sunburn and all that? And then they went in and they were reading the magazines and what have you. And I thought everything was going well until Christina said, oh, Ruth, by the way, we're hungry. You want to go down and and get us something to eat? And she walked into the kitchen and her mom said, "Uh, what are you doing here? She says, well, everybody's hungry. She said, well, you I'm trying to remember how she put it, but I think it was to the effect of, well, you're you know, you're supposed to be at the party. You're not supposed to be down here uh, getting food for them. You're not there, you know, you're not here at that party to wait on them. And uh, one other thing, uh, going back to what, Liz, you were talking about, uh, that incident, and uh, things do happen in the North, and I was kind of wondering, and I'm glad that uh, Jody uh, Picot mentioned in the statement that, that, the, that the book was based on that incident that happened in Flint, Michigan, uh, a few years back, because I was kind of wondering if that was where she based the uh, the, the premise of the story was from that uh, incident that happened right here in in the
5: Midwest. Yeah, Marsha, I'm glad you brought it back to the the, um, the slumber party because that was going to be my comment. Is like, Christina was liked Ruth and stuff like that, but when she was with her friends, it was like Ruth was her servant girl.
0: I'm going to try to cut Christina slack. If you want to call me prejudice, go ahead. But she she knew the house. Ruth knew the house. She didn't say, okay, tell your mama to bring up the food. You know, come on, let's have the pecking order. She says, Ruth, would you would you go get it? Now, should Christina have anyway. done it?
12: She should have done it herself. Okay,
0: Ruth Ann said she should you. have. But she was the hostess of those girls. And was she going to let Ruth host them? You know, and she sat her down. And Mama... I I didn't agree with her. Don't you ever do that again. You know, I understand the totality. Then later in the evening, when Christine, when, uh, when, um, what's her name? Ruth went to the bathroom after the girls went, you know, sneaked in and then got in bed with Christina. She explained to her, you were in the bathroom because you didn't want us to see you, weren't you? And it was kind of, you, you know, you go by your experiences. And Christina started learning slowly, ever so slowly. But she's a teenager, too, just like Ruth. And Ruth could have told her, no, I'm not going to get it. But she's, yeah, yeah you know, I'm, I'm going to do it. I, I live here, practically. That's my view. But you guys may disagree. It, You know, everything can't be made an issue, especially with a teenager. You know, they, they don't think. She just, hey, would yeah. you go get it? Just, you know, I, I, that's my thought. But maybe I'm wrong.
8: Well, I think she was just so used to having Ruth wait on her and go get her, Dessert, or, or her cookies, and her snacks, and what have you. That's why she did it. And uh, you know, yeah. Granted, knew, uh, Ruth knew the house, uh, but uh, Christina lived there, so you know that that's that's my view on it. There's no reason why she couldn't have went down and and uh, gotten the food herself.
2: Yeah, she could have even gone down and asked for help to get it. You know, if if she was going to have to take a lot of things up upstairs, Um, the one comment that I wanted to make, and then I want to give Chris and Jenny P. a chance here, they haven't had a chance to talk, Um, but the one thing when Turk, after the baby died, and Turk went and was talking to the hospital lawyer, and the hospital lawyer said, why are you suing, why are you thinking of suing the hospital? You should be suing Ruth Jefferson, because she was the nurse there. That was, that was a horrible, horrible thing to do, because she just egged her on, and it just, is that something that a decent lawyer would do? I don't think so. But anyway, um, Jenny or Chris, do you have anything you want to say? Chris, if you hold down the control key till you hear the chirp, you'll have the mic and you can say whatever you want to say.
9: Uh, yes, and... Uh... That scene we're talking about also happened. Wait, I think
0: we have to listen to Chris and, uh, and Jenny, uh, LaDonna, and then, sure, we want to hear you. Ladies?
12: Well, I really enjoyed this book. Um, oops. Um, I found it. At first, I kind of found it uh, a little bit hard to read. Um, and um, well, let me clarify this a little bit. Um, I majored in... Uh, well, actually, I kind of minored in it, but uh, I majored in Chicano studies, and I've always been really interested in uh, learning about other other cultures and stuff. And, um, I don't know, for some reason, it was easier for me to talk about stuff like this when I was younger, which is kind of sad. Um, but um, it was a really good book. I I had to skip ahead to the ending, because I was like, oh, no, was this going to end really badly? And <laughs> um, But I found the ending a little hard to believe. Um But, um, I don't know, I I really enjoyed it. I have so much I could say about it, but I know we're almost out of time. Um, But I thought it was a really good book, and and I enjoyed hearing what everybody has to say about it. So, um, like I said, I used to be able to talk about this stuff a lot easier when I was younger. And then I was in a whole bunch of room with a whole bunch of Chicanos, and (laughs) now it's hard for me to talk about it. It's kind of strange. But anyway, I went through a lot of white guilt, so...
7: Oh, well, getting back to what Randy said, I think that's very typical. I think that they always want you to go after what they call the deep pocket.
0: Guys, why don't we let Chris speak, and then, you know, we we have repeaters here. We're all wonderful, great thoughts, but let's see what Chris has to say. Is that Christine from Oregon?
3: Yes,
8: this is me, Christine from Oregon, um, from Medford, Oregon. I really enjoyed the book, and I loved it that they had three narrators narrating the book. I thought it made it more special.
2: Thanks, I'm glad we were finally able to give you a chance, okay, now, Ladon. if you still remember what you were going to say, we'll let you talk, and then Michelle.
9: Okay, yeah, I was just thinking, there was another scene in the book, uh, like the one that we were just discussing about the, the house party, uh, when, uh, some, I can't forget exactly how it went, but uh, Someone came up with a question, and Ruth was the senior and experienced nurse on the, on the scene, and the other girl was just starting out and didn't know anything, but when she was asked the question, they went to the white girl for the answer, thinking just automatically that the white girl would be superior, superior to Ruth. Uh, the problem I did have with the book was was like uh, some of us said is is the ending that has ended so abruptly and I thought she was just looking for a way to have an upbeat ending because the book was so hard and and so difficult uh, throughout but uh, i I guess what I'm thinking I, th- I thought Turk couldn't have that kind of conversion so quickly, but when you think uh, Brittany. When she found out that she had black blood in her, it was so bad, so bad, that she had to go and get rid of the black blood. Blood. She had to cut herself, bleed it all out, get rid of all the black blood. And so, when Turk saw that, I, I suppose that that kind of shocked him, and uh, and and helped with the conversion. But I thought that was a pretty dramatic scene where she, where Brittany was on the top of the grave cutting herself trying to get rid of the black blood
7: you know now that we're talking about this the slumber party it actually i didn't realize it at the time but actually there was a lot of really interesting stuff going on and one of the things that that made me think that maybe christina and ruth really were not friends was that um, ruth waited till everybody went to sleep because she wanted to uh, put uh, tie her hair up with a scarf and i couldn't i couldn 't exactly understand what the reason was for that. I thought it was something about letting your hair grow longer, but i said i, I didn 't quite get that and then she wanted to use moisturizer that so that her skin wouldn't be ashy and I thought to myself, you know they 're living in the same house, and if they're really close friends shouldn't she be comfortable enough to, to be this way in front of Christina, but maybe she wasn't comfortable in front of Christina's friends. I, I, you know, that's what I thought. But it was another, like, nice little touch that they had in the story where you saw some of the differences because I remember another friend that I had from work, she had her hair braided, and she told me, and I couldn't believe it at the time, she would go to the hair salon, and she would be at the hair salon for 12 hours, 12 hours she sat in the chair from like I don't know 8 o'clock in the morning till 8 o'clock at night it took that long to to braid her hair and I said how could you be there for 12 hours you know they bring in meals and all kinds of stuff it just takes so long and the other thing she explained to me which also I didn't know is that she can't wash her own hair she actually had to go to the hair salon and have her hair washed and so her, it was really really it was interesting to me because it shows you just one way that, you know, that there's differences and just like they said in the book, they said that Ruth would have known like all the shampoos that the white girls would have used on their hair, but we really don't know the, the way, the, all the ways that, that, that black people have to take care of their hair. So it, it was interesting. They also talked about that. If anybody's ever read the book Americana, it was, it was in that book as well. So all these things I thought were, were really interesting and, and things that maybe we should you know be more aware of.
0: I, I'll only say quickly that I don't believe Ruth and Christina were friends. Christina was privileged. And way up there, and uh, Mama, sure. They, and Ruth did not live in her house. She wasn't there very much. Uh, and Adisha just stormed through it. I don't. As a little kid, you know. So they weren't friends. And uh, Christina didn't know what she was doing in the bathroom. She explained it to her. And I thought that was well, step one on the learning curve for Christina. She has got a long way to go, but she she did understand that. She said, I understand.
4: No, they didn't live in the same house. It was just, um, I think, maybe the first time that Ruth had spent the night.
11: Pam, do you have any thoughts on that? Uh, oh, yeah, I finally got a beep. Um, yes, um, one of the reasons why oh, that um, Ruth went into the bathroom to wrap her hair. It's a wrap. And the reason why most black women wrap her hair is to keep it from knotting up. In in, through the night. It keeps it straight. It keeps it from knotting up. I keep my hair twisted because it keeps my hair... I have very thick, thick hair. Most black women have very thick, thick hair. And it can get really knotted up or really matty or what they used to call it, nappy. And um, it's very hard to take care of. But I don't have to wash my hair but every two weeks instead of once a week. But Ruth wrapped her hair up to keep it straight and keep it from becoming nappy. Um, at the summer party, when, when, when the young lady told her, do you tan? Asked her, did she tan? Well, yes, we tan, and we sunburned. And Ruth didn't know how to answer that as a young, teenage uh, little girl. And when she went downstairs to get the food, Christina said, oh, let's go get us food. We're hungry. Um... What was she supposed to do? They're friends. Did she take it, did she take it like Christina was trying to tell her, oh, well, your mothers are made, you have to do what your mother does? Or was she telling her, oh, can you run down and get us some food um, real quick as a friend? I don't think Christina was her friend until Christina started to see what Ruth actually had to go through. And I don't think Ruth was actually Christina's friend until Chris, Ruth had to decide who Ruth was going to be. Um, Ruth had to grow up as well as Christina. Um, when she went downstairs, and her mother asked her, "Why are you down here?" and she said, "They want food." And she said, "You'll learn. You'll see. You'll learn." And um, her mother was telling her, "You're basically telling her you're not their maid. I am." And this was in New York. She was in New York. Her mother worked for this family in New York, um, and um, she went to Connecticut. Ruth uh, worked in Connecticut. But um, it was it was a hard story for me to read because there were some parts in the book where I was ready to toss the book out the window. I was cussing so hard. And there was parts of the book where I was just in tears. When the mother died, when, my, when her mother died, I was in tears um, because that's... Uh, a celebration of life is what we call it, and when I go to a, a funeral our, of a family member, it's called a celebration of life, and everybody gets up and talks about what kind of joy that person brought into their life. So it was, that was hard because when my grandmother died, I, we did that, and it was hard. So, but the summer party, Christina had to grow up, and so did, so did Ruth. And Ruth had to do a lot of growing up, and she had to do a lot of growing up during that trial. Ruth had, didn't realize a lot of what Odessa, Odessa, her sister, was telling her she had to go through.
12: Well, the whole slumber party situation was kind of interesting for me because I thought that, you know, everybody would have understood that already about, you know, the hair and, and why, why, people, why black people wrap their hair and stuff like that because they could see it, and I thought they would know all about the, the shampoo. So um, one time when I was with my friend, you know, I said, and gee, I hope it's okay if I ask you questions, because she was talking about her hair, and she said, "Sure." Um, and um, so now I'm realizing that it's not something that I don't understand, just because I was blind and I, I blind and I can't see the stuff. It's apparently stuff that a lot of people don't understand. So that was kind of interesting.
5: I just wanted to comment really quickly about the the question in terms of the lawsuit when the when the hospital administrator was trying to redirect Turk to sue Ruth. I don't think that that was very real. I think that any attorney worth their weight would have not only gone after Ruth, if, in fact, that the that, that case could be made for any kind of lawsuit, he would have gone after Ruth, he would have gone after Ruth's supervisor, and he would have gone after the hospital administration for allowing the supervisor to do that. I mean, it would have been they would have been suing down the chain.
0: I don't think they would have just gone for Ruth. I think it's showing that the attorney was not Ruth's friend. Remember when Ruth went into Carla, the attorney... She thought she's my friend. She's going to give me legal advice. Well, she sold her out. That's what Jody was trying to say. Sue Ruth. In fact, you're right. The hospital, everybody in sight. Ruth doesn't have deep pockets. But the, hospital. Not, the hospital. does. And she was. She, she was as I, Remember, she's a lawyer for the hospital. And if she could talk him into it, you're. But you're also right that any attorney worth his salt would never would never do that. I want to. I know we're probably nearing the end. That's up to our hostesses. They have to give the next book. But I want to ask Pam. This is a tough one. What solution do you have to guide us to to diminish racism with at least the people we know? What do you think we? Should? I heard Jody. I know what she said about jokes, and I don't tolerate those either. But what can we do as individuals? What what can we take away to stamp out racism?
2: Okay, I'll let Pam answer, and then we haven't heard from Joni at all.
11: Bob Betha. If you didn't, you live down the driveway. I can, I can drown you. I think um, that's a to me. I think is to allow us to have our life experiences and to understand that we're all one. We all belong to this this big thing they call the world, but we're all different, and our life experiences are different, and you don't have to understand my life experiences like i don't have to understand your life experiences but i think to allow, to allow us to live our life experiences is a different is, is different and i think that's the hard part for everybody is to understand we have every right to live our own life experiences just like everybody else and um the, the stupid the crazy jokes uh, calling us people people of color gorillas Calling people of color because um, uh, we like watermelon. Only black people like watermelon. My husband likes more watermelon than I do, and he's not black. Okay? Um, um, those are crazy. Those, that's racism. That's passive racism. And that's something that I've had to deal with and most people of color have had to deal with um, all their life. So allow us to have our life experiences and understand our life experiences are going to be different from yours. And we can discuss and listen and discuss it, but we will never be the same. Never. We're all, all of us on here are blind. And some of us are uh, visually impaired. Some are totally blind. Some can see some, some can't. Some people on here are, are hard of hearing. Uh, some people are are. are black some people are chicano some people are white all of us are different and each of us have our own life experiences and we should be allowed to live our own life experiences Um, when you ask me questions bob i have no problem answering the questions do i think sometimes they're intrusive no because i'll answer them anyway but somebody might some other person might think that they're intrusive Uh, i remember at the community the CCB convention, a couple of ooh, last, a couple of years ago, um, at right here at our CCB convention, um, they teased me a lot that when I get laryngitis and tell me I sound like Rochester. Okay, um, there. I think it was wasn't it Mitch who started it, dear? I think it was Mitch. It was Mitch. And this started calling me Rochester and it didn't bother me because number one, I love Rochester. I think he's a fantastic character. And number two, it just didn't bother me. But when some other people of color heard that somebody say it to me at our, the convention, were pissed off about it. And they were mad at me for allowing it to happen and did not understand that it did not bother me because i'm black and it should have bothered me to be called rochester but it didn't that's my own life experience and they should have allowed me to live my own life experience that's all i mean
0: okay so but if he or me would call another black guy in the organization rochester and he got mad at me i have to come to understand whoops i went over the top I, i i shouldn't go there with this guy
11: you crossed the line But for me, that's not crossing the line. To me, it was a joke. I, I, when I can laryngize it, I do sound like Rochester, honestly. I do. Um, so, um, no. Doubly so. Hush. My husband said doubly so. But, um, but yes, that's what it means, Bob, because sometimes people do cross the line. Um, being, it's, it's interesting. I was talking to my friend, Aisha, and she and I are the only two blacks in our whole group of friends. And sometimes it's hard for even even she and I, when we're trying to explain to people stuff, and they kind of get this this. It's almost like if I could see them, they get this glazed look in their eyes because they don't understand. And you can't I can't explain my own life experiences, but my own. Thoughts and the way black people think Because I don't think like all all black people Don't think alike It would be like a a mind hive or something But we all have our own life experiences That's all I mean, Bob That allow people to live their own life experiences And understand that sometimes Something someone says May be crossing the line for that person
13: Well, um I haven't said anything Tonight because uh, I've been having trouble with Uh uh, my computer, as far as uh, uh, being thrown out of the chat rooms and stuff. But anyway, my name is Joni, and I'm from Edison, New Jersey. And of all Jodi Pico's books, I thought this was the best one. Um, I have found that some of her books, um, the, the endings are very kind of no point to them. But this, I I, uh, I felt I was very emotional with the, with the skinheads and, and the treatment of Ruth and um, how brave she was. And, well, I thought all around it was a good book. I also thought that the end came a little... It was too pat. It was too... Um, I mean, She gets married and lives happily ever after kind of thing. Um, I was glad for her, but I just thought that it was a little just, you know, too too much.
0: Joni, I'm sorry. We got most of that, but you're really buffering, if you don't mind. I'm sorry.
3: Could we hear the next book that we're going to be... into.
0: And then if people want to talk all night, they certainly can but I've got to end the recording at least. But this room is yours, so if you want to continue, please feel free to do so. So let's see if Randy has the next book for us.
2: Okay, this was a great discussion, and I thank all of you for coming, and especially Pam. I really enjoyed hearing your thoughts and explanations of things. The next book is a personal favorite of mine by Kristen Hanna. It's called Firefly Lane. It's available on Audible, Bookshare, and Bard. And the DB number is 66232. It's about 15 hours long if you read the bard version. The audible one is a little longer. It's about 17 because they play the music from the different eras. And it's about, just to give you a quick synopsis, it's about two friends who are friends for 30 years, and they have their... Um, they're, they're two very different individuals, and there's a betrayal that takes place. And it's just, it's very well developed. Kristen Hanna, as always, just does a great job with her characters and the, the events, and she incorporates history into the book. And it's it's a personal favorite of mine for Several reasons. So that's the book, Firefly Lane, DB66232.
3: I me, think I should say, too, the uh, the Bard version is read by Gabriella Cavallaro, which she's is great. one of my favorite yeah, readers.
0: She's good. Let me take quickly mean, end with a Rochester story, if I may. In 1937, Jack Benny beat Rochester with a hairbrush, and a lawyer... Went and threatened to sue Jack Benny for Rochester's civil rights. Well, I, it didn't go anywhere. But Rochester owned three racehorses, made millions with his great character, um, and was a. And when Jack Benny died, was hysterical. Absolutely, nobody made him. He loved Jack Benny, and Jack Benny loved him. He, they should. They never did the the brush anymore. They they took that out of the script after an 18, that program. It was I heard it and they shouldn't have done that. But uh, Rochester always got them in jokes and everything. So uh, it's quite a story. Okay, I'm going to end the recording, but you guys can talk as long as you wish, please.